right. So again, uh, what's kind of unique about the environment that we've got set up here is we have people in a classroom live here as well as virtually through Zoom. And we're trying to record these in such a way that they're very useful for watching later online. And so the kind of format that we're trying out this series is I'm going to basically uh, have kind of a presentation for the first 30 minutes here. And then we'll have lots of discussion that are kind of planned for after that 30, 40 minutes at the beginning. Um, so if you've got questions of clarification, definitely ask those. Uh, but if you've got kind of discussion questions, rabbits that you want to chase and things like that, save that for uh, just a little bit later and we'll explore that with all the time that we've got. So there was a, uh, I watched last night the movie Signs again. I think it had been 10, 15 years maybe since I saw it last. And it's one of these M. Night Shyamalan films that has, you know, the really cool twists at the end. And this is probably one of his best films, I think. It's a fantastic film, just how well it's put together, how tight the script is. But the general theme of it is it has to do with this small little farm family uh, that's preparing for an alien invasion. And the main figure in it, the person that's played by Mel Gibson, he's actually a Anglican priest that lost his faith when his wife died in an accident. And so the film explores not so much the idea of alien invasion as much as the faith or lack thereof of this individual. And there's one point where the character turns to his brother and he says, there's two types of people in this world. There's two types of people. There's one group which believes everything that happens in life are all coincidences. It's all coincidences, just chance, everything that happens. And so deep down, these people believe, deep down, they are terrified. Because if everything is chance, if everything is coincidence, then we are ultimately alone. And there is no one that is watching out over things, right? On the other hand, there's this other group of people that believe that there are no coincidences in any way, shape, or form. No coincidences. That everything happens for a purpose, even if you can't understand why. And so deep down, these people, regardless of what happens, regardless of what they see in life, they know that things will be all right and they live that way and so it's kind of interesting this this thing that's put forward by by uh, this character the series that we're going through right now the light in the dark the purpose of it is we are reviewing how god preserved his word through the ages how god has over the span of 3500 years or more kept his word alive preserved and accurate for us today. Miracles in the Bible, in fact, famously in the Gospel of John, they're not even called miracles, they're called miraculous signs. And the purpose of a sign is to point, right? It's to point to something. Uh, and the whole point of miraculous signs in the Bible is that they point to Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're already looking at Jesus, you don't need the signs, right? You don't need the signs. Um, but your friends, your friends who don't need Jesus, they need signs. They need signs in the sense of they need things to point them towards Jesus. And so the series that we're going through right now, although we're not going to be talking about strictly miraculous signs, we are talking about signs. There is something absolutely unbelievable, nothing short of incredible 
about the way that God has preserved his word through the ages. There is nothing close on this planet compared to the history of the Bible and how it has been preserved for us. And so our goal is to kind of think about uh, God's word and about the history of how God has preserved God's word as something that you can use as a sign, so to speak, that this is something that you can be able to talk about intelligently to your non-Christian friends so that you can point them to what's most important about that gospel message that God's word preserves. And so with that in mind, we're right now going to be looking at the formation of the Old Testament canon and just how amazing it is, this, this, the first uh, group of bi- uh, books of the Bible that we have today and the preservation of it. And so, again, besides the fact that we're live with a live classroom and having lots of people zoomed in, I would encourage you right now to mute all of your computers at home unless you've got a question, and then uh, by all means, unmute and ask. If you go to our website, you scroll down to the light in the dark banner, you'll see that there's a banner or a button right underneath the banner that says, click here for the light in the dark handout. And so you can go there and you can find uh, the handout for today's class appended to the end of last week's uh, material that we went through. And here's our Sede's passage. This is just a powerful passage, one well worth memorizing. Peter writes, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Completely reliable. Is there anything reliable in life? Gravity, Gravity, right? And sometimes gravity, I would argue, probably isn't as reliable as we'd like it to be. Yeah, death and taxes, we might say. Um, (laughs) Humans are unreliable right? The truth that comes from the lips of humans, unreliable. The messages that come out of the mouths of humans, unreliable. You have words 100% reliable, completely reliable. You cannot find this anywhere else, right? Something that is entirely reliable, a message. And you will do well then, if it's completely reliable, to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so as We are making our way through dark times. You have a light, a completely reliable light to share. And so just again, these are going to be the topics that we go through. Last week, we talked about what does the Bible claim about itself. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about where did the Old Testament come from. It's kind of called Old Testament canon formation. Then how was it preserved next week? Then we'll do the same thing with the New Testament. Then we'll look at some other books of the Bible as well. And we'll uh, spend a lot of time just familiarizing ourselves very well with these amazing uh, uh, facts and this amazing history that God has given us in the preservation of his word. Last week, then, we especially focused on this idea of what does scripture say about itself? Scripture makes some very bold claims. It says that the Old Testament, from start to finish, it's God's word, 100% God's word preserved for us. We heard Peter say it right there. Uh, The New Testament, 100% God's word preserved for us, the words of the apostles. The Bible, if it is God's word, it has divine authority. It is the highest authority in our lives, right? Trumps absolutely everything else. It also has divine power that when you read God's word, God is working through his word. And we're going to be seeing that, especially uh, in the next portion of scripture that we look at. And that the Bible is sufficient. When we use the word sufficient, what we mean is that it is all you need in life 
for your spiritual salvation. You don't need anything else in life to get to heaven other than what's found in God's word. Sure, there's other things that are nice, but for your sufficiency to be with God in eternity, it's only found in scripture and it's all found in scripture. That's what the Bible claims. So with that, we've got here the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah did his ministry from the 630s to about the 580s. And so at this time, you have the divided, king of Is the divided kingdom of Israel into Israel and Judah. And you have all of the uh, kings that are taking place at this time. You've got a handful of decent kings, but then you've got an awful lot of evil kings that have been leading the children of Israel astray to all kinds of messes. And so in the book of Jeremiah, God provides this huge amount of prophecy where he is doing lots of calling Judah to repentance, just over and over again, trying to draw to their attention the, the problems that are taking place and what those problems do with their relationship with God. And then there's tons of warnings that you've got the Babylonian exile that's coming as well. In the middle of Jeremiah, uh, chapters 30 to 33, you have what's called sometimes the book of comfort. So in the midst of all of this prophecy about uh, the need to repent and that judgment is coming in the middle of it, you do have this beautiful promise of a new covenant that God is going to establish. But at the very beginning, the very, some of the very first words of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes this down. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So very powerful words of comfort given to Jeremiah, who's a young prophet that is going to be doing nothing but calling an entire nation to account under God's law. And this is the way that God begins speaking to him. So how do we know that the words that Jeremiah is going to speak, how does he know that these are inspired words? What are some of the keys that he gives us here? The very first words that he says is he says, the word of the Lord came to me. This is a very important phrase that we find all over the Old Testament. And this is the very clear sign that the writer believes what is coming next is clear prophecy, right? It is clear prophecy that this is God clearly revealing his words uh, to the person that's writing. On top of that, then, uh, we saw that he said that the Lord touched my mouth, touched my mouth. Um, what do you think is kind of part of that imagery, touching his mouth? God himself right, is present now in Jeremiah and working through the words of Jeremiah. So again, remember back to what we were saying about that God's word is powerful, right, that there's an actual supernatural power that works through it. This is clearly talked about in scripture. Uh, the prophets 
God touches their mouths. He is now present with them. Sometimes that touching of the mouth thing, if you remember, there's times when like a coal is taken and touches the mouth of the prophet as well. And the idea is not only is God touching the prophet supernaturally to allow them to speak, but, but uh, forgiveness is part of this as well, that he is now making the person holy in his sight and appointing him as his holy messenger uh, before God. So sometimes there's some gospel stuff that's bound up into it. What do you make up though of Jeremiah saying, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. So what were Jeremiah's excuses? There's two excuses. The first, we've heard this one already, right? I do not know how to speak. Remember, yeah, do you remember Moses? Moses, when God appeared to him in the burning bush uh, on Mount Sinai, that was Moses' first thing, right? He says, I do not know how to speak. And there we saw God bent over backwards to make it very clear to Moses that it was not Moses that was going to be doing the speaking, even though Moses's lips were going to be moving, right? Um, that that is not a legitimate excuse when God says, I'm sending you somewhere to speak. If God is sending you somewhere to speak, then God will work through what you say, right? What about this other excuse? I am too young. I am too young. Is that a legitimate excuse for not sharing God's word. I am too young. Again, God's word is our spiritual authority. That means that the word that we are sharing, it is not based on your authority. It is not about who you are and your status with your friends and your family. It is entirely about the person who is sending you. The person who sends you is ultimately the real authority. Maybe think back, I don't know, maybe like uh, back in, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, military settings, if a general had to send a message to one of his chief officers, he would send a messenger with that message, right? And when the messenger was given the message from the general, would the messenger say, I'm too young, I can't share this, I'm too young? No. Because that message that that messenger was carrying carried the authority of the general. So the age of the messenger, the status of the messenger doesn't matter one bit. The only reason we use the excuse, I am too young, is not because we are not given the authority by God, but it's because we're scared we're going to be treated a certain way, that people aren't going to listen to us because of our age. And that's not a legitimate reason to not tell the truth, is it? because we think people aren't going to listen to us. Instead, we just leave it in God's hands, knowing that he is going to take care of us, that he is going to work all things out for us, and he simply calls us to share God's truth, right? In response to, I am too young, then uh, the Lord says to him, right? Um, Don't be afraid, I'm with you and will rescue you. So our fears of sharing the gospel, because we don't think we're the appropriate person to share that gospel, our God says, I'm with you. I'll rescue you. It will be all right. Just because you don't think that you have the status to share this gospel message with someone or this law message with someone, like Jeremiah is sending it, doesn't matter one bit. Doesn't matter one bit. What only matters is what I think and what me, the God of the universe, does with you, my messenger. So all this to kind of really drill in there that what we've got in the Old Testament is we've got prophets that are speaking God's word. 
and they are being carried along by God's word as they prophesy, and they are carrying God's authority as they share that word. And uh, what does that word do? Look at the power it has. God says to Jeremiah, Today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And you know what that sounds an awful lot like to me? The keys, right? The keys in the New Testament. When God gives his church the keys, the ability when you share law and gospel to throw open the gates of heaven and to close the gates of heaven when you pronounce <laughs> law and gospel. That's how powerful God's word is. Jeremiah had that power thousands of years ago. You still have that power today. So with that, let's get into our uh, real kind of material for today. Here's a couple terms that we need to think about. So there's kind of four important terms that specialists use when they talk about books of the Bible. They will call some of the books of the Bible homologumina, which is, uh, that'll be a great one for, as you're kind of learning your, your Jeopardy facts and crossword uh, puzzle facts, homologumina, homologumina which means that this is a book of the Bible that virtually all leaders throughout the history of the church have accepted. So from the time it was written to its dissemination, no one really had any questions about whether or not this should be considered the word of God and be considered part of what we call a canon of scripture. So the listings of official books uh, that belong in something like the Bible. So there are books that are homologumina. No one really has any doubts about them. Um, then there are books that are called pseudepigrapha. You see the word pseudo there, right? That's attached to it, pseudepigrapha. These are books that when they were written, virtually everyone in the church rejects them right off the bat, recognizes them as, as false books, as books that are posing uh, to be books of the Bible, but it doesn't really fool anyone in the Christian community. Then there's apocrypha, which we'll talk about, which are intertestamental books. So these are going to be books that uh, they're not inspired. They don't claim to be inspired by the authors, but the Jewish community still valued them as important. And they were books that were written in between the Old and the New Testament. And then there's this antilegomena. So these are books that were questioned. So when they were first written or at some point during the time of the life of either the Old Testament believers or the New Testament church, there is maybe a period where uh, a lot of religious leaders were like, I'm not too sure whether or not this belongs in the canon. But then eventually, it was put in the canon. And we're going to look at both antilegomena in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament. And we'll just kind of talk real quickly about that in case any time it comes up in discussions, well, this book really shouldn't belong in the Bible because it says this or that or because this is what someone said in the past. You'll maybe have a couple of things to talk about and you'll know kind of how to follow up with those things. But first, we need to ask the question, how do we know that the Old Testament is God's word? And we're going to be doing this by looking at, on the one hand, internal evidence. So the evidence that we can find right there, right inside of God's word. And that is by far and away the most important for us as believers. In fact, this is all we need is the internal evidence. But we'll also look at the external evidence, that uh, evidence that the Old Testament is special, somehow preserved in a special way. Uh, something that we can talk about with our unbelieving friends. And so there's really, there's lots of different ways to kind of look about this. We're going to reduce the internal evidence to kind of three general ideas here. The first is we're going to say it's self-authenticating. 
So self-authenticating, what does this mean? So in John chapters uh, five and six, Jesus has fed the 5,000, and then he gives a very famous discourse, the bread of life discourse. And in that bread of life discourse, he makes some very exclusive claims about who he is, about how he is the source of life and how you need to go to him for life. And in the middle of it, he says this, he says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and they are full of life, right? They are full of spirit and life. So what's Jesus saying here? What does it mean that the words that Jesus speak are full of the capital S spirit and are full of life, right? Um, God's word. In fact, the very words that Jesus himself speaks, Jesus says, are supernaturally powerful. These words are able to give life. Now, what kind of life was Jesus talking about? Even though he had just fed the 5,000s with physical bread, he then begins calling himself bread. And so the life he is talking about here is not physical life. What kind of life is it that you can only get from Jesus and Jesus alone? Eternal life, right? Spiritual life. That God's word has the ability to take dead sinful hearts like you and me and has the ability to create life, to bring us to life and to create faith in our hearts. So the first reason that we know that the Old Testament is God's word is that when you read that Old Testament, God uses that word to create in you faith, faith in Jesus as your Messiah and your Savior. In that sense, it is self-authenticating. It does exactly what it claims that it does. It builds supernatural trust in you that Jesus is your Savior. It creates faith. It brings spiritually dead hearts to life around his word. Jesus claimed that about his own words here, uh, and the Old Testament uh, clearly fits within that as well. In fact, Jesus himself is going to be saying this. Jesus later on says, on the road to Emmaus, well, this is actually, uh, yeah, this is the road to Emmaus here. The road to Emmaus, if you'll remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to two disciples that are on their way to a town called Emmaus, and they are arguing with themselves, trying to figure out what to do with this fact that their Messiah that they had been following was crucified on the cross, and then a tomb was found empty, and they're all kind of just confused about what's going on and they're kind of depressed about it all and so jesus starts talking to them to them and does jesus just appear to them first no instead before he shows his resurrected self he talks to them about the old testament he talks to them about the old testament and he says this jesus said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what was Jesus' view of the Old Testament? Because here he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written at all yet. What's his view about that Old Testament? The Old Testament is God's prophecy pointing out the coming of him, the Messiah. So Jesus himself calls the Old Testament God's word. And this is probably what's most important to you and I. The reason that we are in love with the Old Testament 
is because Jesus was in love with the Old Testament, because he believed it was God's word and that it was the words of life that pointed towards him. Uh, this is what he said to his disciples, uh, to the 11 disciples behind closed doors. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So again, just reiterating, this is a good kind of Jewish way of summarizing the whole Old Testament. Uh, the law of Moses, what books of the Bible are that? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the five books of the law, the Torah, that were written by Moses. Then you have the prophets, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so then you've got the prophetic books, like we just read, like Jeremiah, right? And Isaiah and the other books. And then you've got the Psalms, right? The Psalms of David. And so this was just one of the ways that uh, the Jewish mind kind of classified the Old Testament books. And here Jesus, Jesus says, these Old Testament books, right? The Old Testament, it had to be fulfilled because it was written about me. In other words, this Old Testament was God's word, and it was God's word pointing towards me. So Jesus calls the Old Testament God's word. Uh, final reason that we, or a final bit of internal evidence we can talk about, the apostles call them God's word. So we've got not only Jesus talking about it, but we've got the apostles of Jesus afterwards. Um, here, Peter, again, what's he talking about in this Second Peter passage, our Sades passage? He's talking about the Old Testament. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You really can't say it any more clear than that, right? That the prophecy of the Old Testament is the product of God's will. It is his word. So all this distress, the Bible clearly refers to itself as God's word and that it has the properties to bring us to life and to, to create faith in us. And what's your experience with the Old Testament? Those of you that are Sunday school teachers, uh, when you're teaching uh, Old Testament lessons to you know, young little kids, do those Old Testament lessons strengthen their faith? Does it point to their Savior? Does it show them their sin, but also show them salvation through Christ alone? You bet, right? Uh, we use God's word, the Old Testament, to create faith right? Um, now, the way that we technically talk about prophecy is we say it's progressive revelation in the sense that God did not just tell us everything all at once about what the Savior would be like. He started first in Genesis chapter 3, telling us just a little bit about what the Savior would be like. The Savior would be someone that was going to crush the serpent's head, right? A promised heir. And then over the course of the next uh, several thousand years, he slowly reveals more and more details about him. And now we can look back at all those details supernaturally preserved by God for us to point to Christ. So that's the uh, internal evidence. Um, but now this is important for us. It's probably not going to be entirely convincing to uh, if you're sharing this with your unchristian friends, right? Um, how about external evidence? Does the Bible line up, the Old Testament anyways, line up with the world around it? Well, this is what we can say. Uh, there's kind of three levels of external evidence we can talk about. One is the historical details. So the historical re details recorded in the Old Testament have been revealed to be very accurate. So often details critical scholars have argued were inaccurate have been demonstrated true by archaeological discoveries. So all this to say that there's lots of arguments that you might find 
among uh, non-Christian scholars where they are arguing that the Old Testament is not historical because of, because of, uh, because there is a lack of evidence outside of, outside of the Bible to support what was going on within it. So for example, you might hear uh, that there's no Egyptian evidence of the Exodus, that we can't find pictures on hieroglyphs and things like that in Egypt of the plagues taking place and the Israelites um, leaving uh, Egypt at that time. So there's lots of arguments that are kind of based on, we don't have evidence to support it. Um, there's not very many arguments though that are based on claims that archeological evidence contradicts scripture. So this is very different. This is saying we have these things that archeologists have shown and it directly contradicts what the Old Testament writes. We've got very little that we can talk about in regards to that. Instead, it's arguments usually that there isn't any historical evidence for this or that. What's interesting though, is that we've got lots of archeological evidence supporting Old Testament history. In other words, we've got cities that are in the right places, right where the Old Testament books say that they should be. Uh, we have corroborating inscriptions that we find in different places. So for example, uh, the Exodus out of Egypt, we don't have hieroglyphs you know, that show a bunch of uh, Jewish people carrying an ark out of Egypt. But what we do know is that the language that's used in the Exodus account where it talks about Egyptian cities, in the Egyptian historical records, those cities are only called by those names in a very narrow period of time. Because when you have different, uh, when you have different uh, pharaohs with their different reigns, they will name cities differently and use different language. So, for example, the cities that the Egyptian or that the Jewish people were creating their bricks in and things like that, the names that we find there, they only fit for an era of between uh, its uh, 13th to 11th century, I think. So a very kind of narrow window. If they had used any other language, we would know that it would have been written at a much later time or an earlier time. But instead, the language that's used there fits specifically within that time period. And we know that archeologically, right? Um, so there's things like that. But we got a little bit more that we can talk about. This is the Tel Dan Steely. So an argument was once put forward for, for a few centuries where it said, we've got no archeological evidence that there was a King David. King David never existed as far as we know outside of the Bible. We don't have any evidence to corroborate that. And what does the Bible say about King David? He was this huge, amazingly successful king with a big kingdom. Surely we'd find something about him outside of, uh, scripture, outside of scripture. And we didn't have his name on any inscriptions anywhere until, 1993, there was a stele, so a kind of uh, uh, marker that was discovered that was written with an inscription that referenced King David and his children and the, uh, the, the heirs of King David. And it was accurate in the way that it described him. Uh, it corroborated the family line of David that we have in First and Second Kings. So all this to say, 
sometimes there's arguments that are put forward that say, because we have a lack of evidence, because we have a lack of evidence, we, this, we can't believe what's written in scripture. What's wrong with arguments like that? Well, over time, that evidence could very well be found, right? It's very different than saying, I've got something that directly contradicts the Old Testament. We've got very little of anything noteworthy to say about that. But when arguments are made about lacking evidence, um, you know, just give archaeology its time. The city of King David, the reign of King David, what, what era are we talking about there? 1000 BC? 1000 BC? We have very little archaeological evidence of any sort, you know, as far as inscriptions from 1000 BC um, for any kingdom at that time, right? And so, uh, especially ones the size of David's in that area of the world. Um, so, um, over time, archaeological evidence uh, has always favored the Old Testament accounts of things. So, that's just kind of one way of looking at it. Or how about this one? As for other events in 2 Kings of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? So, just kind of in passing, in 2 Kings, there's mentioned this tunnel that's written about, uh, that there was a tunnel that was dug under Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And so if you're a city on a hill, that's real good for defense against uh, foes that are attacking your city, but it's really bad for sieges, right? You run out of water because there's no water up there. So Hezekiah, during his reign, 2 Kings tells us, he dug a tunnel uh, that provided water uh, for the sake of sieges when they took place. And this tunnel was never discovered until 1838. And in 1838, uh, I think there was, uh, uh, yeah, in 1838, the, the tunnel was actually discovered. And when the tunnel was discovered, it was found to be 583 yards long. Well, you might say, well, there's a tunnel under the city. That doesn't tell us much of anything. But in 1880, uh, as a kid was swimming through this tunnel, because it still had water in it, was still functioning well, in 1880, uh, this kid found an inscription that was within this tunnel. So as he's swimming through it, found this inscription that was written on one of the walls. And the inscription is about, eight, uh, it's about uh, 18, 19 feet from the Siloam pool. And this inscription basically talks about the idea of that when the two people were digging, they met at this specific point and uh, verifies the idea with the type of script and the dating of it that this would have been from around the time of Hezekiah, right? So we've got things like this where historically what we discover, what we dig up, it lines up. It just lines up historically with what we find in scripture, uh, what we find within the Old Testament. Certainly, you can talk about lack of evidence, but that's because you're talking about things that happened 3,000. 4,000 years ago, but as far as the evidence that we do have, it all lines up very nicely around what uh, the Old Testament has written down. Uh, how do we know the Old Testament is God's word? So besides uh, the historical, archaeological kind of context, we also have the grammar of each book, and it matches the time when the books claim to have been written. So uh, for example, the Old Testament was written possibly over a 1500 year period that's a long time for this book to be written right so you, that means you've got language in that book of a hebrew that existed at one period 
and then a Hebrew that existed 1,500 years later. You think the language would change much in that time period. Just for a minute, think about how much English has changed since the King James Version of the Bible came out, or Shakespeare did his work, right? So in four, 500 years, the English language has radically changed. Think about spelling and stuff like that. Scholars know all about this in regards to the Hebrew language as well. We can see how the Hebrew language has changed over time, and it lines up with the ages that the books talk about as well. So for example, we uh, know that the book of Job was written and that it takes place, that the account takes place sometime in Abraham's kind of era. So we're talking uh, around uh, 2000 BC, that it's a period that comes from around that age. How? Because of the very specific language, the grammar, the verbs, forms, and things like that that are used within it. And so that helps kind of line up and we can check then to see whether or not this book that was written when it claims to be written, whether or not it actually lines up with the time period. And the Old Testament is uh, fantastic for doing this kind of work with. Probably the biggest thing, though, that we can talk about as far as kind of external evidences go is the actual um, preservation of the Old Testament over time. So in 1946, 1947, some Bedouin shepherds were looking for their sheep among some rocks in a kind of hilly cliff face around the Dead Sea. And one of them uh, comes out of a cave holding a bunch of scrolls. And he takes these scrolls back to uh, his settlement and they're trying to kind of figure out exactly what's going on here. They know they've got something special. They bring it into town. They're trying to get uh, different uh, merchants there to purchase this from them. There was one merchant that refused to purchase it, thought that these things had to have been stolen from a synagogue or something like that. Eventually, though, the scholarly community discovers this, and one of the scrolls that this a Bedouin shepherd was just trying to sell in the marketplace was an Isaiah scroll that was a thousand years old. A thousand years old. So to put this into context, the oldest manuscripts that we had before, but that we had before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were ones like the Masoretic text produced by the, the community of Masoretic Jews around 900 AD, uh, 800 AD, in that kind of time period. So we didn't have any manuscripts of the Old Testament older than 800, 900 AD. That was the oldest copies of Old Testament manuscripts that we had. The scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they dated back to 100, 150 BC. That meant in one discovery, in one discovery, a thousand years was breached in the study of the Old Testament text. And what do you think they found when they compared this Isaiah scroll from around 100 BC with the Isaiah, book of Isaiah that we had from around 900 AD? What do you think they found? Very few differences, very few. This was mind-blowing to the scholarly community that there was so little changes that took place between the two. Uh, so for example, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head, I believe, uh, so Isaiah 53, one of the greatest chapters in Isaiah, right? Uh, the one about, um, about uh, the lamb being led for the slaught, to the slaughter, this great Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. In that chapter alone, the differences came down to a matter of letters that there were something like 10 or 15 letters that were out of place. 
So out of, so as in characters, right? Like as in the letter, you know, like a single letter. Out of a thousand years of this book being copied, there is down to just letters, right? That were the difference between uh, in this chapter that has some of our most explicit words about the coming Messiah. That's absolutely mind blowing if you think about it. I would, I would grant you that if you were to copy a book of the Bible by hand today, right? In one of those chapters, you would have more than 15 changes just in one copy, right? Just in one copy. And yet in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in this discovery here in the caves at Qumran, there were 972 manuscripts that were discovered here. Out of those, this was a religious community that had lots of different manuscripts. So they had their catechisms and hymnals and lectionaries and stuff like that too. But out of those 972 manuscripts, 225 of them were Old Testament texts, 225. So this just absolutely exploded uh, the ability to do research on the Old Testament and the transmission of the text. And the most famous is that great Isaiah scroll. Um, all 66 chapters of the, of, the, of the book of Isaiah with just a few words missing at the very bottom, right? You can see where there's just maybe a couple words missing here or there uh, because this scroll is a thousand years old a thousand years old. We have hardly, you know, the, the amount of thousand year old manuscripts that we have, uh, there's just very few of them uh, that exist in the world. And all of a sudden we were given 225 of them. So just absolutely amazing. So um, one bit of external evidence, we call this the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've demonstrated an unprecedented preservation of the Old Testament compared to other ancient books. And this idea of it being an unprecedented preservation, this is not just a view that Christians have. Um, unbelieving scholars um, look at this and this is just absolutely astounding uh, just how well they've been preserved. So those are the types of things that we can uh, think about as far as internal evidences and kind of external evidences. For us, again, the external evidences, this is just icing on the cake for us because all we need is the internal evidence. Jesus calls the Old Testament scripture. We look at it, it points to Christ. The Holy Spirit works through it and he creates faith in our hearts. Do we really need anything more than that as, as Christians, right? Talking about this topic. But when it comes to, again, the idea of signs, right? Things that we can use to point people towards scripture and towards those books. God has given us just an amazing amount of stuff. Um, the Old Testament, uh, because we're talking about books of the Bible that are, you know, 2,000 or not 2,000, uh, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 years old, you know, uh, 3,500 years old, really old books, right, that have been transmitted for such a long period of time. We don't have as much archaeological stuff to talk about because there just isn't much about anything uh, from that old. Uh, textual stuff, very limited. When we start talking about the New Testament, then it gets just ratcheted up to a degree that is just really mind-boggling. You cannot wrap your head around just how much God has given us in regards to the New Testament. So that's the Old Testament. Any questions at this point, both from Zoom class, people here, anything in regards to what we've talked about as far as these kind of evidences that we know that the Old Testament is God's word. And we're using that word evidence in a you know, very kind of specific sense here. Yes, I just... Um, yep, Marie's got a question. What about corroboration from uh, other ancient... <laughs> Sources because there's, no, there's the archaeological side of things. Yeah. But um, you know, there were Babylonian tablets and scripts and stuff. And my understanding is that in some cases you get things like uh, 
dedications that are linked with Old Testament things that happen in Israel where there's the tribute paid to Assyrian kings or Babylonian kings or stuff like that. And I think there are yeah. in a few cases there are these other corroborating things from other civilizations that have no there's no reason for them to highlight that yep. that evidence. Yep. So Murray uh, for our Zoom. Uh, listeners, Murray said, how about co corroborating evidence from other uh, literature from the time of the Old Testament? Uh, so, for example, Assyrian Babylonian inscriptions and things like that, that corroborate and line up, correlate very closely with what the Bible describes. This is, yeah, there's no question about that, especially if we're talking about kind of uh, the, the uh, Silver Age, what we call the Silver Age of Israel. So after Solomon... Uh, when we get to kings like Josiah and Hezekiah and guys like that, in that time period, because they're interacting so much with nations like Assyria and Babylonia, these nations that we have tons of literature from right now, and it's not that old, right? We're only talking uh, 500, 600 BC as opposed to 1600 BC. Uh, there's just a whole lot more to work from. So we can find tons and tons of corroboration and things kind of lining up in regards to especially the kings after uh, Solomon um, and things dealing with the exile and the return to Jerusalem, all of that stuff, there's just very little room for doubt. The big kind of arguments that take place there aren't uh, in regards to the archaeological evidence, but instead people take a book like Daniel, for example, which was it, the grammar and everything like that matches perfectly the time period that it says that it was written, but Daniel has prophecies about, uh, about, for example, the Greek empire, right? And things like that, and about how the empire is going to be split up. And so the reason that there's, the reason that there's a controversy with when the book of Daniel was written is because the grammar and all that kind of stuff places it before Greece, but it talks about things that humans just normally don't have knowledge of, like the future. And so those are the reasons that people place and try to figure out the datings, right? It's because they can't come to terms with the prophetic stuff. There's a, a great pastor in our church body getting his PhD in Old Testament studies that's focusing on the book of Daniel. And, uh, and I can look up some stuff if you're interested in that. The corroboration though, that kind of falls by the wayside if you're looking at things, especially before David, because it's just so old, so long ago, there's just very little to work from, right? Um, so yeah, good, other questions? Yeah. Now, Kamadi? Yeah, the, the other days are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is that the Nag? I, I, I forgot how to pronounce it, but I read all of it. Yeah, so, yeah, the Nagamadi. So, that's a, that's a separate thing. Um, but uh, so, here we're talking about. Uh, let me get back to you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, let me get back to you on that. So, there's lots of very kind of famous digs and discoveries, yeah. especially in the last 100 years. Um, yeah, right. Uh, lots of different kind of libraries that were just kind of discovered by accident and a lot of manuscripts showed up. But the caves at Qumran, uh, yeah. those were the ones that by far and away uh, kind of changed the whole face of what we know about the transmission from a scholarly point of view, what we know about the Old Testament, um, just radically quickly. Yep. Yep. Good. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, so it is 10-2. I'm going to stop there. When we get together next time, then we'll start looking at uh, what we call the antilegomena. So we'll look at the books of the Old Testament, 
that we were going to find uh, some uh, Jewish uh, scribes and rabbis at time throughout history. They're like, eh, I don't know if that belongs in the Old Testament. And we'll look at the reasons why. And hint, hint, it's not going to be because of grammar or language or because of things like that. It's going to be because of uh, thinking the content doesn't fit with the Bible. And we'll look at those arguments and we'll kind of briefly go over some of those just so that that's, you got something like that in your back sleeve that you're ready to kind of talk about that if that ever comes up. If anyone kind of questions uh, whether or not these books belong in the Old Testament, you can say, ah, I, I might have some notes about that. So we'll look at that next time. Let's end right now. Uh, bowing our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have preserved for us your truth, that in your word we find divine authority, both authority to show us our sins and to call us to a life that we just can't possibly live, but also the clear gospel authority that you have died for our sins, that they are paid for fully in the cross, and you tell us to believe and to trust in that. And so we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, your spirit works through the word. On top of that, it's just absolutely breathtaking and amazing how you've preserved your Bible for us. When we look at the Old Testament and when we look at how this book that is so ridiculously ancient, uh, how it lines up with uh, archaeological finds, how uh, the language in it, it's what we would expect to find. Uh, and then just when we look at it, how it just all perfectly points towards you, how it's this beautiful masterful work that shows our deep need for sin, but also how you have over time revealed more and more about how Jesus was going to come into this world for us. Thank you for your Old Testament. Thank you for preserving it for us. Help us to get to know it well and to get to know the scholarship of it well too, so that we can use it when we talk to our friends and our family and our the unbelievers in our lives about who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us in your word. In your name we pray. Amen.